This morning, if you'll join me in the book of Philippians in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, we're back in our uh, message. We're going to, I was looking at Job today, we're, we're talking, or for this week, we started a series a couple of weeks ago in Job called Lord, I Have a Problem, and uh, we, we got, we've been in a couple of those in a series, but probably next Sunday we'll come back to that, but we began a series of messages in, in December uh, called the Alpha and Omega about the life and ministry of Jesus from before. Uh, he was uh, born while he was in eternity past, we call it, until uh, all through, we'll look through, all through his ministry through um, into the future as well as these messages go by. But Revelation 1 verse 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty so Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. That, that those are words in the Greek language. Alpha means to be a, basically A in our alphabet. Omega would be basically Z, uh, Z in our alphabet. And so he's the first and the last and everything in between. And we've looked at five messages so far, or four, um, five messages, yes, so far. This will be our sixth one. Um, we looked at Jesus before creation. Uh, we looked at that back um, in November or December and then... I think it was a Sunday before Christmas, we looked at Jesus' birth. And then I uh, believe it was the, um, I believe it was maybe um, New Year's Eve Sunday, we talked about Jesus and his childhood. Then we skipped a couple of weeks. And uh, two weeks ago, we looked, Jesus, looked at Jesus, the God man as man. And last week, Jesus, the God man as God. And of course, if you missed any of these, you'd like to hear them, they're on our, our uh, audio podcast site. And uh, you can, you can uh, follow up on those. But uh, one of the passages we've looked at each week is in Philippians chapter 2. And usually we start somewhere about verse 2 down to verse 8. But today I just want to look at verses 4 to 7 as we get ready. And today we're going to do our, let our fingers do the walking again. If you take notes or if you're looking up the verses as I read them, we'll be in the gospel accounts. We'll be in, mostly in John, but some of the other, Matthew and some of the other gospel writers. But look with me at chapter 2 verse 4 down to verse 7. Uh, Paul writes and says, and he, he writes to the Philippians and talks about um, their, uh, the unity in the body of Christ. And, and this church had a lot of good things going on. And he encouraged them to keep their unity together as brothers and sisters. And the way he, he did that was to show them the example of our Savior. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this be your mindset. Let this be your thinking when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So today, as we get to our sixth message in this series of messages, uh, we're looking today um, at how, how did Jesus minister? When he was on earth, what are the ways that he ministered? So we're going to look at about eight things today, and they're going to be uh, you know, fairly quick back-to-back -back, um, on the ways in which Jesus ministered. I don't know if you remember back in the 1990s, uh, for a while there, the popular thing for a few years was the uh, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? Uh, bracelets and T-shirts and bumper stickers, and it was a big... I think they put out like, um, you know, Bibles with it written on it. What would Jesus do? And um, it, it became kind of a Christian cultural thing that was going on in the 90s there. And that's a good question. Uh, what would Jesus do? Uh, if, you, if you look at it and take time to, to think about that, what would he do in, in certain circumstances? Um, but anyway, what we want to look at today is how did Jesus minister? Uh, maybe HDJM. How did Jesus minister? How, when he was on earth, 
How, how did he minister to, to various groups of people or even individuals? And let's look at a few things about that today. So there are several of them, and we'll move, we'll move kind of quick um, in some places, but we'll take our time on others. Go with me to the Gospel of John. That's where we'll be a good bit this morning. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have the gospel, have the uh, um, uh, life and ministry of our Savior all the way through from the time he began uh, his ministry. In fact, Mark, Matthew and Luke are the only two that record his birth for whatever reason. Uh, Mark and John do not record his birth uh, as uh, do Matthew and Luke, but all of them record from uh, t- at least from the time his ministry begins all the way through. Uh, to his uh, crucifixion, resur- uh, resurrection, and then, of course, ascension into heaven. So how did he minister? What are the ways that Jesus ministered? These are like eight, basically like eight very simple truths, if you want to use the word principles, that Jesus used in ministry when he came to minister uh, and serve. Uh, and the Bible tells us there in Philippians, we saw that he took upon himself the form of a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. And in John, we'll look at the first one here. Uh, look with me at John 4, verse 34. And then we're going to skip over to chapter 6 of John, but John 4, verse number 34. And so um, the disciples were asking him a question. Um, if, well, rather, they told him it was, they were eating. Uh, they were sitting around enjoying a meal together. And he says in verse 32, I have meat, I have food, I have meat that you don't know of. There in verse 32. Uh, Verse 34, therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him aught to eat? In other words, what are they talking about? All we have is the food we have right here. Did somebody bring him something else? And again, as Jesus often does, he wanted to show them a spiritual truth about something that's in the physical realm. Verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Go over with me to chapter 6, if you will. John 6 and verse 38, he says something very similar in John 6 and verse 38. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. The first thing we see today, Jesus was committed, he committed his entire life and ministry to the will of his Father. He came here to do the will of his Father. That was the very purpose of everything that he did. In fact, later on, as um, from this point on, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night uh, that he's betrayed by Judas, the night that Peter you know, flees and, and, and uh, the, the disciples all flee, but then Peter denies him those three times. That very night, he's praying in the Garden of Eden, or excuse me, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane, um, different garden, Garden of Gethsemane, and as he's praying there uh, to the Father, he said, Father, if it's your will, if, if you see fit, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. And so Jesus committed himself in his entire ministry to the will of the Father. While on earth, that was what he constantly, continually did, uh, living in the center of God's will for his life and ministry. And so in the Christian life, the pathway to blessing in the Christian life, there's no easy one, two, three way to guarantee you're going to have always have success in the Christian life. You're never going to fail or disobey God. There's no one, two, three there. Um, at least if you don't apply a lot of things together, like stay in the Word and prayer. But as far as any one, two, three thing, there's no uh, uh, secret hidden thing to the Christian life. Uh, Jesus said, in secret have I said nothing. He makes everything very clear. But the pathway to blessing in the Christian life is that after you have been saved, this is for any Christian, any time, uh, no matter when they've been saved, that as soon as possible, 
to commit your life to the will of God and remain there the rest of your life. That's the pathway to blessing for the Christian life. Jesus showed that to his disciples, an example by the very words he spoke to them. My very meat, the, 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 what gives me nourishment, not physical nourishment, but spiritual what gives me nourishment, what sustains me is to do the will of my Father. Wonderful lesson that he passed on to his disciples, who we'll see a little bit later, they, they learned that lesson. They realized that later on. They didn't see it quite at first, but he told them that is the very reason I came is to do the will of my Father. And to be successful in the Christian life as we commit ourselves, Lord, what is your will for me? Now that I'm saved, I don't want to just wander around throughout my life, the rest of my life. I want to know your will for my life. Jesus gives us that example. Go with me to the, the Gospel of Matthew, if you will. We'll see the second thing. Spend a little bit more time on this one, actually. Matthew chapter 20, if you'll go there with me. Matthew 20. And uh, we'll start at verse, about verse 25. Uh, let's look at that. Start at verse 25. Matthew 20, start at verse number 25. The second thing, and we've seen this a little bit already in the verse we read from Philippians 2, that he took upon himself the form of a servant. When he came uh, to earth, he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus, number two, Jesus committed his entire life and ministry not only to the will of the Father, that's the first thing, but number two, on serving rather than being served. He committed himself to serving rather than to be served. Matthew 20, look at verse number 25. Jesus called them unto him. He's talking to his, um, um, he's talking here uh, against two, two brothers, um, uh, James and John, as it says there in verse 20, uh, mother of Zebedee's children. She was wanting to them to, uh, wanting Jesus, would you let one of my sons sit on the right hand, the other on the left hand in your kingdom? She, you know, she had great aspirations for her son. And that's great. It's wonderful to have a great goal for them. But Jesus let them know in the next couple of verses, if you, you know, you, you have to go through suffering to go through and enjoy reward. That's a truth in life all through life. Sometimes we have to go through a great deal of suffering in our life till we get to a point that there is reward for that suffering. And so it says there that the other brethren, the other disciples, verse 24, they were, they were moved with indignation. They were getting angry and probably jealous toward those two brothers. But in the midst of that, Jesus saw this is a teaching opportunity. This is a lesson to show all my disciples this important thing that I came to show them. He first and foremost came to be our Savior. Of course he did. But until he's our Savior, his example as a servant won't mean anything. But once he's our Savior, that's what he wants us to get, is a servant's heart. Verse number 25, but Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. In other words, he says, there's a ladder in the world, there's a ladder of success, and people are climbing it all the time, and they don't care who they step on most of the time. They want to get to the top of that ladder. And as the saying is, it's lonely at the top. And a lot of times when people get to the top of that ladder, they look back and they see regret for all the things they've done, the people they've heard to get where they were. And Jesus says, that's what, when he uses the word Gentiles there, he's, he's talking about people that are unsaved. That's what they do. That's the way they are. Because we all have a sin nature, he understood human sin nature very well. But pick up at verse 26 as we get to the lesson of it. But it shall not be so among you. And he didn't put a period there. He explained it. It shall not be so among you. For, but whosoever will be great among you, 
Let him be your minister. Now, that's not, we use that word for pastor, but this, is another, this word is a word for servant. We see it in the text here. That's what he's talking about is servant. Verse 27. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. See, the Bible defines itself. The minister there means servant. So he said, whoever will be great, let him be your, your, the one who serves. Whosoever will be chief, let him be your servant. In other words, Someone who leads to lead from the heart, with a servant's heart. That's the way to lead, he says. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He showed the ultimate act of service, and we read that in Philippians a moment ago, where he took upon himself the form of servant. And then the next verse, where we left off in Philippians, said that he was obedient even to the death of the cross. And that's what he says there in verse 28, to give his life a ransom for many. And so he committed his entire life and ministry, not only to the will of the Father, but on, being, on serving rather than being, servant, being served. It's vital to have a servant's heart. It sometimes means putting the needs of others above your own needs. That's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 2. Not to look upon the needs of yourself, but the needs of others. Um, your own needs or wants. It makes people feel welcomed. And not feel like a number when they're treated that way. Our creator left heaven to take upon himself the form of servant. He served those who should have been serving him. He served them. Some of them did. They learned. And some would find out later the blessing of what it means to serve in the name of Jesus. For the glory of God to serve others rather than just want everything for yourself. And, and uh, the selfishness that comes with that. One of the greatest examples of this is one of the, the 12 apostles themselves. Simon Peter. Peter was the most vocal of the 12 apostles. He was the one to say something usually quicker than anybody else would. Sometimes he put his foot in his mouth. <laughs> Sometimes he said the very much the right thing. When Jesus asked the apostles, he said, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Well, they said, Well, some say you're Eli uh, Elijah or one of the prophets or even John the Baptist come back from the dead. But who do you say? That's a question every person Ask them or should ask themselves at some time in their life. And yeah, I think you have. Who do you say that I am? If Jesus stood there and asked you that, how would you answer that to him? Who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He knew who he was. He believed on him. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Peter, because flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. But my Father, which is in heaven, he revealed this unto you. So Peter was an apostle that God used greatly. He had, like you and me, had his faults. Sometimes he put his foot in his mouth. He was known for that. In fact, the very night into that early hours of the morning, the night that Jesus was betrayed until he was going to be crucified that next day, if you remember, Peter denied him not just once, but three times, just as Jesus said he would do. So Peter is a great example to you and me that God doesn't, have any perfect people. Now, we should, we should do what we can, strive to be obedient. We should strive to serve Him. We should strive to, strive to do everything He can. But God doesn't have perfect people to work with. You look at all the people there, that, all, the, all the people in the Old Testament, uh, the men and women, they weren't perfect, just like we're not perfect. God used them because they were willing to be used. They had a servant's heart. They wanted to be used by God, and God used them. In the book of Job, we may get to this at some point in our study on Job, um, there's a, there's a phrase in there, great men are not always wise. Sometimes great men, great people in our eyes that do great things, they make some dumb mistakes. 
They do some dumb things. And Peter did that when he denied the Lord. But remember after that, when Jesus was with his disciples, the, the week after he rose from the dead, he, he gathered with them again on the seashore. And they were all sitting around, and they were all enjoying some fish and, and honeycombs sitting around and enjoying that, eating that together. Even in his glorified body, Jesus ate, didn't have to to sustain life, but he did, and he ate with them and fellowship with them. And remember he said to Peter three times, he said, Peter, do you love me? Asked him that question three times. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He restored this one that had, um, that had you know, denied him those times. He restored him. And Peter learned a very important lesson from our Savior. Not just his calling to be a pastor, to be a bishop, an elder. First Peter records that. But he, he also learned the importance of servanthood. I'll tell you how. In fact, Lord willing, on Wednesday night, we'll see this a little bit more. In First Peter... As Peter begins his first letter, his first of two letters in 1 Peter, he, he starts it out this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he was. He was called to be an apostle, and he was an apostle. But you see something interesting when you get to his second letter, however long it was between letters that was written, maybe a few years. When he gets to 2 Peter, he begins 2 Peter this way. Now, it wasn't wrong for him to say Peter an apostle because... He was an apostle, and as an apostle, that's one of the things that the Lord had for him to do is write these two letters. But here, in the second one, he starts it this way. Chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Peter 1. Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he emphasized the fact that now he, he learned his lesson. I'm a servant of my Savior. I'm an apostle too. But the thing that I want you to understand is he writes the second letter, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And the more a Christian grows in grace, the more we'll see the importance of serving our Savior, of serving Him. Third of all, go with me to um, the Gospel of Mark. We were in Matthew. Take your, uh, go to the right, take a right, a few pages, and go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. So he committed himself completely to the will of the Father and his life and ministry. He also committed to serving rather than being served. Number four, look with me in Mark 1, verse 35, verse 39, down to verse 39. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. A couple of times we see that about Jesus when he chose his twelve. He went, uh, he, he also did the same thing, went up to the mountain and prayed for a while. And then he came back down and he began to choose his disciples. But look at verse 36. And Simon, that would be Peter we just talked about, and they that with him followed him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. Verse 39, he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Number three, Jesus concentrated his ministry on the important rather than the urgent. The important rather than the urgent. He showed the priority of prayer. As the scripture says there, he was a great while before day he was praying. And then as he made his way, um, uh, or, or as uh, Simon came looking to talk to him, to, to tell him, Master, come. There, there um, a lot of people, they want to talk to you. They're seeking you. So he made a priority of prayer. And he concentrated his ministry on the important rather than the urgent. He shows us there the importance of prayer before he even went out to do anything else. Even our Savior took time to pray to the Father. And many times in our life, urgent things, problems even, needs can, can come our way. And sometimes rather than prayer being the first thing, it's often pushed down our list of priority. 
But he showed that priority there. It should be a priority in dealing with anything, no matter how urgent that it may be at the time. Facing that problem with prayer is first and best always in, in dealing with anything in our, pro, in, in our life, any problem, whatever it may be. But look what Peter said to him. He said, all men seek for thee. Now, Jesus could have, have gave in and let popularity guide him. I'm sure by that time, after he'd performed some miracles, uh, in fact, he was on his way to do the very same thing, to go and cast out uh, evil spirits there. Um, uh, cast out devils, it says in verse 39. After he'd done performed some miracles and after his ministry had begun, his, uh, you know, his following began to, to uh, increase. And, Peter, and excuse me, yeah, Peter says to him, all men seek for thee. They, they wanted to, to um, maybe ask him questions or just to be in his presence. And that may have been something important, but Jesus saw it more as something urgent than what was really important. He knew what was important. And, though it says, and so it says there that he, was, he said, let's go to the next towns. In Galilee, in the region of Galilee, let's go there. I must go there. I must preach. I must go to the synagogue. I must preach what God has sent me, the Father has sent me to do. So he concentrated his ministry on the important rather than the urgent. That's hard to do sometimes to be able to tell the difference between those. Because oftentimes we get urgent needs that come up, but it's always, always best to remember what is important rather than what is urgent. And so Jesus showed us that example there. Number four, still in, uh, go back to John rather. Leave Mark, go back to John chapter seven. We're going to be in John for a few minutes actually in the next couple of points. John chapter seven, look with me at verse number 24. John seven, verse number 24. Jesus says this, Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, a lot of people that know the verse, even lost people know the verse, Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. You hear that a lot when you talk to people. Lost people, um, oh, you're judging me. Don't judge me. Well, uh, Jesus said right here, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Jesus said judge, but do it righteously. Number four, Jesus judged people according to their heart and motives rather than their outward appearance. We're human. When David was chosen to be the next king just as a teenage boy, and Saul was king at the time. And remember when um, Samuel came to anoint the next king because God was done with Saul pretty much, except for he still got some more calendar. But other than that, God was done with him. He said, I want you to find a man after my own heart. He finds this little, this shepherd boy named David, and he says, I want you to go and anoint one of, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the boys. I want you to anoint them, Jesse's boys. And all of them came by, the oldest to the youngest. This is not him, the Lord said. This is not him. The la- David, the little run of the litter, so to speak. He's, he's a man after my heart. I want you to anoint him. He says, and don't look at outward appearance but look at what is in the heart because God says, that's what I look at. That doesn't mean we shouldn't keep up our outward appearance well. That doesn't mean that. What it means is you can't judge someone by their outward appearance and the way that you look at them. The way we judge, rightly judge, Jesus said, judge righteous judgment and to follow his example. He concentrated his ministry. He spent his ministry judging people according to their heart and motives rather than their outward appearance. So one of the remarkable things about um, to observe when you look at all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus doing this 
over and over, whether it's with an individual or a group of people. Uh, I'll give you a reference. John 2, verse 25, it says, And he needed not that any uh, should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knew the hearts and motives of everyone he talked to, those who asked him questions, those who genuinely needed help. He knew that. He understood that. Those who tried to accuse him of sinning or disobeying, um, disobeying uh, his father. He, he knew that. He understood that. And so we'll actually see a couple of examples of this in our next, in, in a couple of points here in just a moment. But we see that he judged people according to their heart and motives, not to their outward appearance. He looked deeper than that. He looked within and saw uh, from the eyes, looked down all the way into the heart. The Bible does that. In fact, the scripture says in Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing, dividing excuse me, piercing even to the dividing asunder, of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Just as Jesus could judge people rightly by their motives rather than their appearance, so the Word of God does the same thing to us. The Bible judges our intents, the thoughts and intents of our heart. And so Jesus judged people that way, according to their heart and motives. Those who were wanting the right thing, those who needed help, Jesus helped them. Those who were like, as we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees, he also was able to bring judgment uh, on, on what they did as well. Go with me to John 4. Let's look at the fifth thing. Moving on quickly. John chapter 4. This should be a very familiar passage to you. John chapter 4. This is our fifth thing. Fourth thing is he judged people according to their heart and motives rather than outward appearance. Number five, Jesus gave the gospel without excusing sin or condemning sinners. John 4. Um, you know this passage well, verse 1 to 19. One of my very favorite um, uh, places uh, in Scripture where uh, this woman, we, is known as the woman at the well, we don't know her name. The Scripture doesn't give her name. Um, if, you watch the, uh, if you've watched The Chosen, I think it's in season two maybe, this is probably my favorite episode. It brought tears to my eyes when you watch that. But in John 4, let's look, uh, skip down to verse 5 to 9. We're not going to read this whole passage for time's sake. Then cometh he, speaking of Jesus, to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Then cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For the disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest a drink of me, which I am a woman of Samaria, Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So it shocked her, because in that culture, for one thing, men and women that weren't married or family, they wouldn't just openly talk to each other in public like that. But not only that, Jews and Samaritans didn't exactly get along too well. And so she said, you know, why are you asking me this question? Um, why are you asking me to give, to give you to drink? She didn't ask it in the sense that she was being mean or hateful. She was just in shock. Look down, skip down to verse 16. And he's, he has a conversation with her, and they're talking about where to worship, and, and she also knew that the Messiah was to come at some point. Pick up at verse 16. Um, actually, pick up verse 15. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou saidst truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. 
in talking to her, he never condemned her, though, what she was doing. He wanted her to know that she had a spiritual need. She's thinking at first physical water from that well. He wanted her to understand spiritual water of salvation. And she, as you read on through there, she got it. She eventually realized that, and she believed on him. She worshiped him there. And the Scripture says she went into town and said, Look, and come with me and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Is he not? the Christ. She knew indeed that he was the Messiah, the Christ. And so Jesus gave the gospel without excusing sin or condemning sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Um, In other words, when we sin, it does not make us more of a sinner than we already are. We're sinners. That's true for everybody. We are all sinners. What it simply proves is the fact that we are sinners. And because of our sin nature, that's what we do. And apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, that would be where we are in our life all the time. But as Christians, we can have victory over that. I think one of the mistakes the church, churches make, I should say, throughout uh, history is a way that they look down on others like that. They, they look down on others and, and uh, uh, their condition, whatever it may be. The Scripture makes it very clear in Romans 3, verse 10 and verse 23, as it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so um, Jesus did not uh, condemn her for who and what she was and what she did. But at the same time, he never excused her sin. Now, that's the opposite danger is, well, since I'm forgiven, I can just do anything I want. And so that is, um, that's the opposite. That is wrong also. Uh, Jesus dealt with people on the right basis. He didn't say to the woman, you're a terrible person. You should have known better. He didn't say, well, everybody sins, so that's okay. Freddie pointed this out when he was here a few weeks ago. A very, very good point. We believe in free grace, that God gives grace. And actually, that's a redundant word because grace means free. But we believe in free grace, that God gives his grace and he saves us by grace. He sustains us by grace. But there is a movement. It's not new. It's, it's increased over the years, though. There's a movement that is, that is titled hyper grace. What does that mean? That means it's a viewpoint that because we're all under grace, we can do anything we want, anytime we want. And God's fine with that. God's not fine with that. In the book of Titus chapter 2, the scripture says that the grace of God has appeared to all men through Jesus Christ, right? And it says it teaches us something. Titus 2 verse 13, to, uh, I believe it's 18. It teaches us something. What does it teach us? That to deny ungodliness, it says. So grace is not something that is uh, a quote-unquote license to sin. Grace is something that we receive from God that because we're sinners, He saves us. We receive from God that because we're sinners, we can be forgiven. But the same grace keeps us from sinning. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So grace is not a blanket to sin. And Jesus did not excuse sin, but neither did He condemn this woman as a sinner. He wanted her to understand the truth. And so the word will condemn us enough when we see it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But thank God for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let's move on quickly. Number six, uh, go to John 5 if you're still in John 4. Go to chapter 5 for just a moment. John 5, verse 1 through verse 9. And this kind of... um, this kind of uh, dovetails from that last point, actually. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 to 9. I'll have to read this uh, quickly to get the context. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the uh, moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. That's an interesting thing, and we don't have time to go into this. A very interesting thing that, that occurred, but continue on. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So when when that angel appeared at that time, um, whoever stepped in first was healed. Um, There's not very much in Scripture about this, but I believe it. Uh, Some people don't, and they want to cut it out of the Bible. That's their problem. I believe it because God said it, and it's there. But look at this guy, verse 5. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. For 38 years, he could not get up by himself and walk and be the first one there. 38 years. The scripture doesn't say how long he sat next to that pool, but he had that infirmity for 38 years and he could not get there in front of the others who got there before him. But look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying, knew him that he had been now a long time in that case. He was probably lying down on a mat or something. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? <laughs> Can you imagine 38 years what this guy's going to do? I mean, his face probably lighted up. He probably was in shock like, you're asking me that question? You better know it. Verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. On the same day was the Sabbath. Number six, Jesus ministered to people we would have overlooked or given up on. Aren't you glad he ministered to you? Aren't you glad he got the gospel to you? Somebody gave you the gospel. Aren't you glad that somebody did that? He ministered to people we would have overlooked or given up on. He was this man for 38 years, and Jesus saw him. Jesus knew. He saw him. Remember, he knows hearts and motives, right? We looked at that point. And so he saw that and judged in that man, this man needs, he needs help. He needs help that only I can give. He knew that as God. And so he healed him there immediately. The man stood up and he walked. The scripture says there, uh, and the same was the Sabbath. What does that mean? Does that, is that in there just by accident? No, because it was that event and others that the Pharisees were going to go, <clears throat> you're not to work on the Sabbath. He wasn't working. He healed a man, but they thought it was working. And so they were going to use this against him. So Jesus didn't care. Jesus knew the man needed healing. And so anybody else might have overlooked him or given up on him. And yet Jesus would not. Number seven. Let's just move on quickly. We've got to move through here. The next ones are in Matthew, actually. Matthew 22. If you'll go there, then we're going to be right next door in Matthew 23. Number seven. Jesus confronted religious people when they were wrong. He confronted religious people when they were wrong. You say religious people can be wrong? (laughs) Oh, do you have time this morning? Matthew 22, look at verse um, 23 there. We don't have time to read this whole thing. But number one of this point, he he, he, uh, confronted those who were erring doctrinally, who had wrong doctrinal practices and passed them along to others. Paul said in his letters and more than once that we point out those who are teaching false doctrine. Why? To put that person down or make fun of them? No, to bring the point out that they're teaching false doctrine. And whatever else they may say may be good, but if they're teaching false doctrine, it needs to be pointed out. 
And the, the New Testament church needs that. But Matthew 22, for time's sake, we won't read this whole thing, but starting at verse 23 down to verse 33, Jesus, it says there, comes across the Sadducees. These were the more liberal of the religious leaders of the day. Uh, you had the Pharisees who were more, um, if you want to use the word conservative, I don't really like that word for them, but they were more what you would consider conservative. They stuck by the law. But the Sadducees were more liberal um, in their beliefs. Look at verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. All right, get that. They didn't believe in resurrection. So they're liberal, but look at this, look at this uh, that describes them as a group. They don't believe in a resurrection. Now look what they ask him, verse 24, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother marry his wife and raise up a seed into his brother. And then he goes on down through there and, and mentions, you know, and the next one dies and the next one dies and, and so forth. Here's the question, verse 28, Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. In other words, that she was the wife of all of them. And look what he says in verse 29. Jesus said, uh, answered and said unto them, Ye do err, or it's a short word for, another word for error, or make an error, not knowing the Scriptures, number one, nor the power of God. He pointed out their wrong liberal view. They were erring doctrinally. These people didn't even believe in the resurrection. So they bring him this hypo, hypothetical question, this hypothetical case, and say, well, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Probably under their breath laughing as they said it, trying to trick him or trap him in a question. <laughs> and it didn't work, as it never did. And so he corrected them. They didn't believe in the, the resurrection, the Sadducees. That's why they were sad, you see. And so they didn't believe, you'll get it later, they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, or anyone. They didn't believe that a body would be resurrected, even though the Old Testament prophesied there would be resurrection. They didn't believe in it. And so he corrected those who were erring. Did they take the correction? I don't know, but he tried his best to correct them. He did what he could. Um, you can't always correct error, but you certainly confront it, and that's what Jesus did. The second part of that is in Matthew 23. Not only those who are erring doctrinally, but also in chapter 23, those with self-righteous attitudes. Verse 1 to 4, Jesus spake to the multitudes, to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now he's about to get into it, so to speak, with the Pharisees. You read through chapter 23, the meek and mild, gentle Jesus is not real meek and mild with the Pharisees at all. He, and they deserved it. He rakes them over the coals. And so uh, he tells in verse 3 and 4, he said, what you see them, uh, what they bid you observe, he said, that observe and do, but don't follow their works. Verse 4, he says, they bind more burdens on people. And they themselves would not move that burden with their own finger, verse 4. Skip down to verse number 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He didn't have good things to say to them. And you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass one, uh, sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he's made, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. In other words, you work hard trying to make someone follow you, and when you do, they're just in bad shape or worse than you are, is what he's saying, because you, you make them turn them out to be just as self-righteous as you are. Wow. Now remember our previous point? Jesus judged people by how? Their looks? Uh-uh. He talks about in there how nice they dress. They just dressed to the, to, the t to the T. They were just all dressed very fine. But he looked and saw them inside. He saw their hypocrisy. He was able to judge righteous judgment just as he said to do. He shows an example here of that. He judged righteous judgment. Judge not lest you be judged. <laughs> he judged righteous judgment on them. 
That's what he told them is, you know, you're with your um, self-righteousness, you're not only condemned yourselves, you're causing others to be condemned because of your self-righteousness. And so uh, we see that he, he realized um, or, they, or Jesus uh, confronted them where they were. In fact, in one place, I think it's in this chapter, he calls them whited sepulchers. You know what a sepulcher is? It's a grave. In other words, he called them a grave that on the outside is nice and white and clean looking. Somebody sprayed washed or whatever, it looks clean. On the inside, he says, it's full of dead men's bones. So he didn't say, have a lot of good things to say about the Pharisees, but they brought them themselves. They reject. Now, thank the Lord, you get the book of Acts, you find that some Pharisees get saved. Thank the Lord for that. God's grace will save anybody, right? Sure, it'll save you and me, it'll save anybody. Well, it, it will. And so that's what he confronted. Uh, not only those who are erring doctrinally, those with self-righteous attitudes, eight. I'm behind. Number eight. If you go with me, if you're in Matthew still, go to chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 21, verse 22. And then I'll give you another reference. We won't actually look at that, but we'll, we'll look at this one. Matthew 19, verse 21 and 22. Jesus said unto him, uh, this is the young man, the rich young man that came and asked him, you know, what, what should I do to and, and, and may have eternal life? Verse 16. Uh, verse 21, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Verse 22, But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Number 8, Jesus met people where they were, but they never remained the same. You cannot remain neutral concerning Jesus Christ. When you hear the gospel, when you hear about him, you cannot remain neutral concerning Jesus Christ. There were those, like this young man, that would walk away. Now, Jesus batted a thousand, but that doesn't mean that everybody that he talked to believed on him necessarily. We hope later on this young man did. But he batted a thousand in that every person he came to, he knew how to minister to them. He knew what was in their heart. And when they walked away, they would never remain the same. The man we mentioned, we saw earlier that was healed there at that pool, you know he wasn't the same. He was rejoicing, praising God for God's healing on him. And changing his life, and not just that, saving him. But you cannot remain neutral concerning Jesus Christ. People will either walk away in faith, believing and knowing salvation, and walk away, or they'll walk away in unbelief, like the Pharisees and some of the Sadducees, like the rich young ruler here. So quickly, let's make this practical. Number one, oh, I told you I'd give you another reference on that last point. Look up Luke 17, verse 11 to 17. That's another reference there. Let's make this practical. We need to hurry and close. Number one, the will of God should be a goal for every Christian. Just as we saw from Jesus' life and ministry, life is too short to miss out on the will of God for your life. And the will of God should always be a goal for every Christian. Number two, never be neutral about your Savior. Every time you read your Bible or you pray or you hear a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or a study of some type, let it draw you closer to Him. Let something in that draw you closer to Him. Never, ever stay neutral about Jesus Christ, about your Savior. Number three, the way to be like our Savior is seen in the Christian servant heart. That's the way to be like Him, is to, be, to have the servant's heart that He showed and to serve, as Jesus showed the example, not to be served, but to serve. There's great reward for those who serve. Scripture mentions that in many, many places. God the Father said, Jesus said, God the Father made this statement in John 12. He that serves me, him will my Father honor. If we serve him, he's looking, Christian, for a servant's heart. 
That's the example he gave. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that each week as we've uh, taken uh, the opportunity to look in this series uh, over the last few months, each time we look and find out more about our Savior, who he is, why he came, what he did while he was here. I thank you for his ministry. I'm sure there are other things we could have talked about when he came to the ministry of Jesus. But we see these eight principles, these eight truths in which when he ministered on earth, that it's so different from what the average person, the average person in the secular world thinks about Jesus. And until they study and read about him in those gospel accounts, they'll really have no idea of who he really is and why he came and that he came for them. And I thank you for our Savior today. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never trusted Christ. Maybe today they understood more about Him, why He came to be our Savior. And for those who are Christians, Lord, those who have already trusted You, may we realize that He is our example because He's our Savior. Following Him is an example of a person's loss. It's not going to do anything for them very much. Certainly not going to give them eternal life. But once we've been saved, following His example to learn to serve as Jesus served. And we thank you for that example, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'll watch over us as we go through this week, and uh, may we apply what we hear today, Lord, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Savior. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand dismissed with a song, with a chorus, a verse. Run a little bit late. Um, at least the kids won't have to worry to lunch, uh, hurry to lunch. <laughs> so uh, anyway, no, what number? Um, 117. 117. Remember right afterwards uh, for kids and young people? pizza time. All right, 117, let's stay as we close together.